Awesome. Well, I'm excited to get back into things with all y'all this evening, talking about discipleship and dating. Uh, we started last week with a conversation around uh, how do you disciple people who are dating? Now, we've talked a lot about dating over the years as a church. Now, if you've maybe you've been only been around for a short period of time, you're like, have we? Um, but for me, I feel like I have preached more series on dating and sexuality and relationships than probably almost any other subject. Um, but for all that teaching, something we had never done was talked about how do you disciple people who are dating? And the neat thing about this conversation is that it, I think, opens up the audience uh, a lot wider. Sometimes when we talk about dating, uh, it can very quickly become a case of the married people tune out or uh, the single people tune out because they're bitter that they're still single or uh, the dating people think it's not for them because they're in a relationship. And you can end in this weird situation, but everybody in our church knows people who are dating. And uh, what that means is that there's this really practical aspect that of how do we disciple people in relationships. Last week, we talked about it and kind of set a framework for different approaches to take at different phases. Now, that said, I uh, believe this should be ready to go. Um, and in a minute, I'm going to kick it to Dan, who's brought some great wisdom on some really practical things that we can do in dating and discipleship. Uh, I'm just going to make sure that the production team has that uh set up correctly. If they do, great. So uh, before I ramble on, we're going to go to 10 slash 11 tips from Dan talking about uh, dating and discipleship. So here it is over to Dan. Hey, everybody. It's Dan. I'm back with another 10 tips. This time we're talking about discipling people in relationships, specifically around the concept of boundaries. So let's get going. Number one, we're getting this from Robin, talks about it all the time, and that's the concept of boundaries needs to look towards health, not away from unhealth. We're trying to chase something good, not avoid the bad. Look towards health, and that's what the boundaries are meant for. Number two, pretty much everybody said this, and that is have the conversation and be specific. Never assume that the person you're discipling won't have a struggle with this. Every single relationship I've ever discipled has struggled in some way with physical boundaries. And so have the conversation, be specific. Number three, we get this from Graham, which is have a conversation both about their history with physical intimacy, but also the relationship with porn. This will have an impact on their physical boundaries. And this is a conversation that needs to happen as it'll affect their relationship. And number four, we get this from Kirsten, kind of related, is to help them understand where things are coming from, where these desires are coming from, that it started with a healthy desire and that it's changed. Quite often, going too far in physical boundaries is an indicator of unhealth and often a breakdown of communication in the relationship. So help them understand that it's a heart issue. Number five comes from a combination of Jesse and our, one of our new interns, Levi. Avoid shame making sure that when you're having conversations with them about boundaries, and if they do go past it, that they understand that this isn't the end. Don't let them get into a cycle of shame and guilt because that'll just barrel them forwards. Avoid shame, work towards health. Number six comes from me. And that's simply that nothing good ever happens after 10 p.m. It just doesn't. What I mean by this is set boundaries based off time. Don't do anything physical after a certain time or after it's dark. Don't 
stay over for a night. Nothing good. I know that you're sitting there thinking, oh, but what about, no, nothing good happens after 10 p.m. Just don't do it. Make that a boundary. Give time boundaries on, on when you're going to be doing things. Somewhat related, Soph and Ruben both talked about how when you're spending time together, making sure that you're doing so in, in common places and with other people and avoiding just unplanned time when nothing's happening. This especially works in concert with if it's late at night, if it's dark out. Do it with other people. Keep doors open. Spend time with other people. Number eight, Jesse and Soph brought this one, which is continue the conversation. The conversation about boundaries isn't a one-time conversation, but this is something that continually needs to happen. Number nine comes from Mick, which is in conversations with your disciples, help them avoid thinking about benchmarks or comparisons. Sometimes we can think of that growth in our relationship needs to equal moving to a next phase in physicality. Make sure you help your disciples avoid that lie, that they don't need to rush to a new benchmark in their relationship. Number 10 comes from Mel, which is to understand that, that emotions have a big role to play, both in that they need to set emotional boundaries, but also that we shouldn't be emotional when we are participating in physical intimacy. Quite frankly, real frank, if you're feeling upset, making sure, or rather, if your disciples are upset, make sure that they aren't going to physical intimacy as a way to make them feel better. Finally, I'm gonna give you 11th. This is just mine. And quite frankly, it's that we all know what we're doing. You, me, your disciples, we understand when we're doing something that isn't a good idea. Let's just be serious about this. And so, disciple the heart. Physical intimacy and issues around boundaries always comes down to secure identity. Disciple the heart. And if the heart's in a good place, typically the rest of these tips will easily follow. So those are my 11 tips for you. Um, Rob is going to be coming and bringing a great message. Um, super excited to listen to it. Be blessed, church. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dan, for putting that together and uh, coalescing some great wisdom. If you haven't caught on by now, tonight we're talking about boundaries and how do you navigate uh, physical intimacy boundaries in the context of a dating relationship? And this is a conversation that all of us can have with people who are, uh, we're discipling who are in dating relationships. And to just kind of make my, to make this really clear here, Paul, the Apostle Paul writes what I think might be the most controversial and brilliant take on human sexuality I've read anywhere in the Bible or outside the Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, particularly the last half and chapter 7. In just a few short verses, he, he casts a vision for sexuality, a vision for relationships, a vision for marriage that manages to, to fall into none of the trappings or mistakes that the world of his day and the world of our day falls into, and instead paints a really beautiful way forward. But the thing about the Apostle Paul is that he wasn't married. He was single, and he writes all of his wisdom to the church, in this case, the church in Corinth that uh, he had a great deal of leadership in, from the perspective of somebody who's single. But he doesn't shy away from speaking to really personal and really uh, detailed aspects of people's lives. We have to remember that the, the authority or the ability to speak truth into someone's life 
as a disciple isn't really born from our experiences. It's born from scripture. This is so important. The wisdom that we speak as a discipler into a disciple's life is not born out of our experiences, although that can certainly be helpful. It's born out of scripture. It's born out of what we read in the word and then we invite people to discover that. And so the question is, how do we disciple people who are in dating relationships in the area of boundaries? Now, if you've ever had the conversation or uh, you know people who have, you know that this question around boundaries is a really, really uh, complicated one. For one, everybody has a story. Um, not everybody in our church, in fact, a lot of people in our church don't come from a church background or a background of, of having a, a Christian vision of sexuality, and therefore they have a story that accompanies that. Maybe hurt and brokenness, past experiences, previous relationships. Similarly, almost all relationships are going to struggle with this. And so the approach that we take needs to be just absolutely saturated with grace and kindness and love while also calling to clarity and truth. And we're going to get back to that in a minute. So as I walk us through this framework, I'm going to sort of start really wide, start with the why, start with vision. That's always where we start. And we're going to work our way down into more and more practical aspects of this. And so when you're exploring a conversation with someone you're dating about how do we set up boundaries? The place that is really important may not be the place you start in the conversation, but it's certainly the place that you want to start by thinking about it and probing and seeking understanding from your disciple is explore their underlying assumptions about sexuality. Explore where they are at. What do they think human sexuality is? What's it for? How does it function? What is their sexual ethic? Before you try to, for example, steer their relationship into a particular kind of uh, healthy way of, of navigating boundaries, we first need to go like, well, what is even a Christian ethic of sexuality? And believe it or not, there is a Christian ethic of sexuality, and I believe it is the healthiest, most vibrant, most life-giving ethic around sexuality that there is. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 at the beginning of his sort of his argument in verse 12, he quotes them and he says, some of you say, I have the right to do anything. You say, and then he says, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, I'm going to be very brief here because I've taught on this at length in other venues, but it's really important to understand that in Paul's day, much like in ours, there were two dominant approaches to sexuality. One of total liberty and a one, another one of total restriction and legalism. He quotes uh, people saying here, the stomach is for food. That was a way of saying, ah, the body's made for sex. The body's made to do uh, sexual things. Therefore, it should be able to do whatever I want. That was the way the argument went. And the Apostle Paul comes in here and he says, yes, the body is made to have a sexual capacity, but ultimately it's not the ultimate thing. And you are more than just a physical being made to satisfy physical desires. You are body, soul, and spirit. You are a complex being. And human sexuality is not just about a physical experience, 
It's about the coming together of a physical, emotional, and spiritual experience. The notion here is that sexual activity has no ramifications. It's just a purely physical thing. This is a really common approach in our world. It's how many, 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 many millions of people live. Total liberty in sexual activity. And the problem is, is that it reduces the human body to a merely physical uh, thing and denies the emotional and spiritual dimension of our humanity. And, P and the reality is that all human activity involves our emotions, our mind, our, our spirit, and our body. And so we want to be careful because total liberty is totally not the answer. Because it denies the spiritual, intimacy, emotional dimension of sexuality as being a real thing. But on the other hand, what Paul was experiencing, and he gets into this really at the beginning of chapter 7 in 1 Corinthians, is that what was happening was people were looking at that and saying, well, the world is out of control, the world is unhealthy, so what we're going to do is we're going to go to total restriction, no sexual activity, sex is bad. Intimacy is bad. And so it, you can see the pendulum swings from it's total liberty, do whatever you want with whoever you want, whenever you want. And if you go and read first century Roman, um, read about first century Roman sexual activity, you discover quite how liberated they were. We are nowhere near uh, as crazy as it was. But then they swung to like a total legalism and started to view something that God made as good as actually wrong and sinful. And this is uh, equally destructive. And it's probably more prone to be present in the church, this idea that sexual activity is bad, dirty, wrong, or unhealthy. And that is not true either. Sexual activity is a good thing, and God made it with a design and a purpose. Sexuality really is a beautiful thing. Sexual desire is a normal and healthy part of the human experience. And so what we want to do is we want to explore what framework, what kind of upbringing do our disciples have? How are they approaching sexuality? Is it total freedom? Are they more biased that way? Or are they more biased to a legalistic kind of bent? I'm excited because I think the, the church world really does have a, a middle road to walk here, which is really life-giving and really healthy, that doesn't fall into either of those traps. You don't want to go to legalism, but you also don't want to say, let's go to total liberty. Help them see that sexuality is more beautiful. The second thing we can do here is that um, we want to remove what I call the shame-guilt cycle. And we do that by actually addressing the desire, by normalizing desire. If people in our uh, relationship, in people we are discipling are often struggling with boundaries. They're going too far, too fast, they're making mistakes, there's pressure, it's unhealthy, there's secrecy. It can very quickly set up a shame-guilt cycle where they're ashamed of their behavior, they feel guilt about it, they withdraw from community, and it perpetuates. And I've seen this play out many, many, many countless times. Shame and guilt are never the answer. And the problem here is that if there is a relationship that is being defined by that shame-guilt uh, cycle in the area of physical intimacy during dating, that shame and guilt will carry with them into marriage. This is really important. So if 
physical intimacy is is described or operated in like a shame guilt cycle in many cases that will carry through to marriage because in a lot of ways dating is like practicing for marriage and so we really want to be careful to make sure that there isn't a shame guilt cycle Dan alluded that I often uh, advocate that we, we invite people not to avoid sin, but towards health. We point people to the health of things. Now, how do we do that? Well, part of it is that I think what we can do here is we can remove some of the hyper-spiritual kind of dimension of this thing. And, and let's just state it for what it is. Physical intimacy, the desire for physical intimacy is a perfectly natural and normal desire. In fact, not only is it normal, it's healthy to feel physical desire. And the truth is that you cannot will it away. And your disciples cannot will it away. No matter how much they pray, no matter how much they serve together, no matter how much they invest in other areas of the relationship, that's good. They will never be able to just eradicate physical desire. It's biological what is happening here. And this is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He, he goes at length to say, look, you can't really control, just eliminate the desire. That's not possible. And in this regard, I think dating is almost like an unnatural process. You're putting yourself in uh, a relationship where you're moving towards marriage, but you're not married, and you're like, ah, it's very awkward. And so part of the process is not so much to say, don't feel this way, but to call a spade a spade and say, you probably feel very attracted to each other. That's why you're dating. And therefore, what you want to do is set really clear parameters around what wise activity looks like, knowing the desire exists. You see how it's framed differently? We're not making people feel ashamed for feeling desire, but we're helping them be really aware and conscious of that desire. Now, this starts by actually... Uh, it means that there has to be healthy, open conversation between the people who are dating about the desire. Carefully and appropriately talk about the, the tension that you feel. Be open and honest with each other in those relationships. And as a discipler, it's important that you're asking the question, are you talking about healthy uh, intimacy uh, practices? Now, the thing with strong desires is that if we're not careful, the desire will take over. It'll begin to rule. So, for example, if you have two people who are dating who are horizontal together, lying down together, desire will take over, and you will end up going too far. I can predict it. It's going to happen. If you stay up late together, and your, your uh, ability to self-control because you're tired, desire will take over, and you will end up doing something you don't want to do. If, for example, I'm going to get more specific here, things like if, uh, like clothes, like leave clothes on. Like desire will take over if you take clothes off. Don't close doors. If you close doors, desire will take over. Do you see how it's not trying to create a shame and a guilt? It's just saying, look, this is what's going to happen because this is what's going to happen. And I think it's really important that part of the discipleship process here is inviting your uh, disciples to have a humility of acknowledging the biological fact. It does not mean that they're deficient or wrong or poor, <laughs> poor disciples if they're grappling with this. It just means that they're attracted to another human being and that's okay. But therefore there needs to be wisdom.
And this leads to the second piece here. Or sorry, the third piece. Establish clarity on the purpose of the covenant of marriage. Now, part of the challenge here is it's like, people might point out like, why do things magically change when you get married? Like, why is it that there are boundaries in relationships prior to marriage, but then those boundaries just magically disappear after you get married? Like, what's happening there? What's so magical about marriage? Why is it that there are that there is activity and physical intimacy is reserved for marriage? Like, why is that? Well, and, and I think this is really important because you want to help your disciples see that marriage isn't an arbitrary, magical change that happens. It's actually a really intentional aspect of God's design for sexuality. So in other words, we're not avoiding something that's bad. We're protecting something that's good so that it can flourish in God's intended design in marriage. Why is that? What is it that marriage does? Well, what marriage does is that it provides a secure covenantal relationship of two people who are physically, emotionally, and spiritually bonded together and committed to one another. A commitment that is intended to last until death. It's two people that are saying to one another, I am for you no matter what. And sexual intimacy is designed to allow true, deep, honest vulnerability. Nakedness from one person to another, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And so... What marriage does is it provides a context for that relationship, a context for there to be a safe space emotionally, spiritually, and physically together. So safe, in fact, that the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that uh, the wife surrenders the rights of her body to her husband, and the husband surrenders the rights of his body to his wife. They, They give up the right to control their bodies to each other in the context of marriage. That's how safe it is. Do you see how beautiful that picture is? Now, that's out of verse 4. To read it more clearly, because I just think it's a brilliantly beautiful picture. A wife does not have have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Marriage creates the context for that kind of security. And some people might say, well, but, but I really love this person. I want to be physically close to them. And what, what scripture would say here is then, if that's true, if you really, really do love that person enough to create a true uh, intimate moment or intimate time together, then the only answer is marriage. And if marriage isn't on the table for whatever reason, then that the relationship isn't mature or safe enough to handle that kind of proximity. Marriage creates the safety net to be truly vulnerable. There's no going out of marriage. There's no breakup. It's designed to be secure. <clears throat> and so we want to help our, our, our disciples see what they're heading towards. They're not, they're not trying to avoid something. They're not trying to deny something. They're trying to protect something until the relationship is mature enough and that maturity is defined by the act of marriage 
mature enough to handle the intimacy that that, that uh, sexuality creates. So then how do we navigate, like, where to put boundaries? Like, you know, do we draw it here or there? I want to introduce you to a paradigm which is really quite simple. It's the honor, trust, love. So rather than focusing on shame and guilt, we want to invite our disciples to focus on honor, trust, and love. I said a moment ago that, that uh, dating is like practicing for marriage. Well, a major aspect of marriage is honoring each other, trusting each other, and loving each other. The job that you have in a dating relationship is to honor the person you are dating. And the way that you honor them, the way that you love them, the way that you build trust with them is not by pursuing uh, increasing levels of sexual intimacy, or, but actually by saying, you know what, I love you and honor you enough to not go there right now. So in the context of a dating relationship, the way that we demonstrate honor, the way that we demonstrate love, the way that we earn trust is by actually saying, I love you and trust you and want to honor you. And I want to practice this by holding that which is precious to you, physical intimacy, until our relationship is mature enough to get there as defined by marriage. This means that, for example, pressure to push boundaries physically is the opposite of that. When one person is pushing the boundaries physically, what that means is they are not honoring the other party. It's not about shame and guilt. You want to invite them to say, your job in that moment is to honor the other person, to love them. And when you push the boundaries, when you pressure them to do something they don't want to do, you're not honoring them. You're not loving them. And even if in the moment there is mutual desire, we have to look towards marriage and say, I want to protect that from marriage, so I don't want to push the boundaries. I want to honor this other person. Our world says the way that you show somebody you love them is through physical intimacy. The Christian ethic of marriage is the way you show someone you love them is by sacrificing yourself for them and covenanting to love them no matter what in the context of marriage, and that is consummated in physical intimacy. So in other words, intimacy is the overflow of a deep sacrificial love. It's not, a, it, it, it's not an act in and of itself, like our world would say. Number five, we've talked about exploring the underlying assumptions remove the shame-guilt cycle, establish clarity on the covenant of marriage, focus on honor, trust, and love. Number five, six, six, five, five. We want to talk about secure identity. Other love, the ability to love another person, is directly connected to self-love. Ephesians 5.33 says, However, each of you must love his wife as he loves himself. So often people will crave physical intimacy because of a deep insecurity in themselves. In other words, they'll use physical intimacy with another person to achieve the affirmation or security that they cannot get in themselves or on their own. And the problem here is that physical intimacy with another person will never address 
or allow us to walk in a truly secure relationship. Physical intimacy will with another person will never help us love ourselves any better. The root of so much pressure to push boundaries in sexual intimacy is due to insecurity in relationship with ourselves. And so you want to have that conversation. Say, hey, like, let's talk about your identity. What is it that you're hoping to achieve in this relationship generally? And what's going on from a security in yourself, your ability to be satisfied and to love yourself in this area of identity and relationships? And finally, what's the last thing you can do in the area of discipleship and boundaries? Well, really simply, you can support practically. You can support practically. A few suggestions here. Number one, uh, offer, if, uh, offer them to stay at your place. I should have been quite clear at this. Uh, people who are dating in the context of a Christian relationship should never, ever uh, share a night together, be alone together in, in, a, in a room. They should never even do that for, for the mere sake that it can be confusing to their disciples and the people they're trying to reach. We want to be really, really clear on establishing that as Christians, we live with a different sexual ethic. So that means that they may need to stay at your place. Invite them over. Hold them accountable to that. The second one is really practically is have the conversations. Don't be afraid to bring it up. It's normal, as I said. Every relationship is going to struggle with this. Have the conversation. Number three, I think you want to invite people to be really focused on the health. Point people to health in this area. But don't make it the only thing you talk about in your discipleship relationships. It can kind of take over. A couple other really practical things here. Uh, as people get closer and closer to marriage, it gets harder and harder to do this because the desire tends to grow. So uh, if you're discipling people who are engaged, they're probably struggling more, not less. It gets harder as things uh, move on in the uh, relationship. Um, and finally, really practically, continue to keep it uh, just absolutely showered in grace. There's no need for shame in this area. Yes, there's an ethic. Yes, there's a call to live a different way. But it's always a call modeled and made in grace. And that means if somebody has a story with brokenness, that's okay. Jesus is big enough to forgive. I've probably not even begun to scratch the surface of what we could talk about here, but got us going a little bit. I'm going to uh, toss it to break, and we'll be back with Q&A. Laura's going to join me, excited to get your questions. So we'll be back in just a second.
All right, welcome, Laura. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Uh, well, get your questions in. I know it's okay. You're asking for your friend, your disciple, <laughs> your disciple, your friend's disciple. It's all good. Just throw your questions in the chat. Excited to hear what you guys are thinking about tonight. Um, mm. This is a really, really important subject. And I really want to make sure that um, the um, that you can ask the questions. Like, there's not, no question that we're afraid of or going to be like, ah. Uh, we've been married for 10 years. We're, we're cool. We've got it figured out. <laughs> totally don't, but we're more than happy to uh, to tackle the question. So please, I really want to make sure that there's space to ask specific questions um, or um, questions that you're, you're kind of grappling with or what about this or what about that. We're happy to, to be there. So Soph's glad to see Laura. That's <laughs> Hi, Soph. <laughs> <laughs> so lots of people are typing. So yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I thought some of Dan's tips were Dan's tips, Dan's were, tips. <laughs> were good. Um, the after ten is is true. My this is not related. It sort of is, but my curfew rule for my parents was I wasn't allowed to drive after midnight because nothing good ever happens after midnight on the roads. So, or if something bad happens, it's always after midnight. Um, and so it's sort of a true it's a true thing uh, in multiple phase multiple areas but um okay good we have a question nikki um how can you encourage people who are in dating relationships um who have boundaries that are compromising but don't believe anything is wrong or if they believe they can handle it even if it may not be that way i have a few thoughts <sighs> yeah uh, go ahead okay so i have two thoughts on this uh nikki uh the first is <clears throat> uh obviously it depends on the particulars but uh, I think you want to go to the underlying assumptions uh, here. What do they think uh, they are doing in those moments? Um, and like, what do they think the intimacy is for? So start with the why. Um, invite them to see some of the potential downsides of it um, in, in terms of the, the aspect that, that sexual intimacy or intimacy is designed to function in the context of a covenantal relationship. They maybe haven't thought about it that way. It might be helpful for them to see it. Um, a couple other really important things here. I think you want to help people see that that the way that they are walking that out is going to be, from a discipleship standpoint, reflected to other people. So a lot of times people will be like, well, it's fine for me. I can do whatever thing I want. And Paul's point is, yes, but it affects other people. So even if, and I don't think it's true. I don't think that anybody can handle it. You can't handle it. That's just pride speaking. But even if theoretically you, you could... You can handle it until you don't handle it. Yeah, you can handle it until you don't <laughs> handle it, and you're not going to handle it at some point. That's uh, yeah. very predictable 100% yeah. of the time. Um, but even if you could, other people can't. Um, and so I would kind of talk to, to that aspect of it. The, th the other part is, uh, I think at some points, there may be needs for some really clear, like, hey, I really don't think that this is wise. And that's why we've set actually quite clear parameters around simple church leaders and um, saying like, look, like there is a standard of expectation around this because we really, really want to, in the area of sexual ethics, be different than our world. Mm -hmm. um, so did you want to add anything or is that? No, that was good. Um, Kirsten asks, how do you disciple someone out of a sense of shame they might be putting on themselves regarding crossing boundaries? Um, this one is, uh, a little tricky. I mean, really the breakthrough comes through, 
um, the Holy Spirit, but I think encouraging them to remind themselves um, of what Christ did for us and what that means for sin and past sin, um, that he doesn't, you know, we're not marked by it um, and that we don't have to uh, live in that past state um, is is helpful and that um, often um, we hold ourselves in that cycle instead of sort of realizing that like Jesus is right there, like wanting to take us out of it. Um, and so I don't know if that's, I don't know, that's not really practical, but it's what came to my mind. <laughs> I think the other part of it is that can be helpful is, is trying to, um, there's more, I'm going to save that for, for a question that was asked further, further below. Okay. Um, well, we'll, we'll, so we'll, we'll circle back, but, um, Laura asks, uh, in summary, um, how do we speak with someone who was raised in the church, felt, you know, shame from the church about, you know, sort of perhaps through their church experience, built a unhealthy relationship with feelings of physical affection, walked away from the church, went the other direction. How do we enter that conversation? Um, and, um, let's see at the end here, how can we speak into these conversations to show the freedom Jesus calls us to, I guess, when the association is negative? Uh, so I think the first point here is that sometimes what the church can end up accidentally and sometimes even intentionally tragically communicating is that where this is, where somebody has pushed the boundaries or whatever, that they're somehow like damaged goods. And that is just so patently false and a lie from the pit of hell. <clears throat> people are human and we all make mistakes and we all have a story. And Jesus' grace is that out of that pain, there is resurrection life. And he, is, he, he wants to redeem that person. He wants to show them that they're loved. He wants them to do, encounter that, that love. And so it starts by you just loving them, you inviting them to see it, completely independent of it. And I think this is where the secure identity piece comes in. So much of it is about people discovering that they are loved by Jesus. When somebody knows that they are loved by Jesus, it will cast out fear. It will cast out shame. The answer, and I think this is partially the answer to Kirsten's question, which is that how do you disciple someone out of a sense of shame? Deeper into Jesus' love for them. Deeper and deeper and deeper into the, his spirit of love for them. And the more that they, are, they know that they're loved, the more ability they will have to no longer... Uh, push boundaries, but also uh, they will experience a freedom from the shame that often comes with it. So, yeah, it's it's almost like a, a secondary thing to yes. that, right? It's yeah. like once they discover that, then you know other things will start to fall into place. So it's almost like you can recognize it and sort of note it, but like help that direct you to like, okay, let's talk about how Jesus loves us and what that means. Um, you know, outside of that particular um, subject. Um, so Nikki says, any brief wisdom on emotional, spiritual boundaries and dating? I've heard a lot of perspectives and frameworks, and I know is something that is asked a lot. Um, yeah, I usually, um, I mean, this one, I, I don't know. I usually disciple people saying, 
it depends on people's stories, right, and their their past, and 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 on the emotional side, you know, if they if they have some traumatic things in their past, you know, um, I usually say probably be careful with that um, for the first couple months, few months, and see sort of in the first couple months or few months in a Christian relationship anyway that has sort of a agreed upon trajectory, you have a pretty good sense of where you're headed. And, um, after that you can, um, there's a bit more safety in, in sharing those things. Um, you don't want to share it right away and then have, you know, something that maybe you've never shared with anyone else before or something like that, and then have the relationship fall apart. And then you feel, you know, it's, it's, it's a very unsettling thing and, and that can be hard to recover from. So, um, you know, it's sort of based on the individual, but I usually counsel people, you know, maybe just wait a couple months, um, and, and see where you're at. Um, spiritually, um, a, a little bit the same. I mean, obviously you want to be praying together and stuff, but you don't want to, again, that it's a, it's a form of intimacy. So you don't want to attach yourself super strongly or super seriously too early on, because again, um, it can feel very disorienting if it doesn't work out. Um, so, yeah, I think that yeah. that's that's pretty good. Yeah, there's so many good questions coming in. Love this, guys. Uh, John asks earlier. You talked about how um, sex involves more than the body, but also the spirit and the emotions. How can we see sex as spiritual? Uh, well, this is really Paul's argument in First Corinthians six and seven, uh, and it's basically that we as human beings are tripartite, meaning that we are mind body and, and spirit or there's, there's different ways of categorizing it but basically who we are as a human being is a we are spiritual and everything we do involves all three parts there's nothing we do that can affect only one part um, every act that we do whether it's praying it's a, so for i'll give you an example in worship we talk about raising our hands physically why because what we're doing is taking what in our mind is words of worship, what in our spirit is a union of worship with the Spirit of God, and we are adding the physical dimension to it to say, I am physically going to worship. So we're bringing together all three parts of our, our, our mind, our body, and our spirit. It's the same thing with, with sexuality. Is it, it is the bringing together of all three parts of, uh, of who we are. They're indivisible. Uh, Mel asks a great question here. Can we jump in? Uh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, I'm trying to keep up with the other questions. Yeah, sorry. They're coming in. Uh, how can we practically disciple those who see desire as a reason for shame instead to see as a normal biological um, and healthy, something to put healthy parameters around? This is really good, Mel. Uh, I'm good to run on this one. Go. Okay. Uh, basically, what we need to do as Christians is we need to break out the idea that desire and acting on desire go together. So... Desire is entirely natural, and we have all kinds of desires all the time for all kinds of things. Some of them really healthy, some of them really unhealthy. Some of them really healthy if the circumstances or the context is correct. Some of them really unhealthy if the circumstances or context is incorrect. Desire by itself is neither good nor bad. It's just an indication that we want something biologically, physically, or whatever. However, as Christians, what we want to do is we want to be careful to choose wisely how we enact that desire. And we have the ability by the grace of the Spirit to choose how to steer our desires. And so what we want to do is we want to help people normalize desire and then empower them 
to say you, by the grace of God, can choose which desires you will act on or not. So split them out. Um, this is very similar to some of the other teaching we've done on sexuality, splitting out the idea of tra attraction and orientation uh, as different aspects uh, and requiring different approaches. Mm -hmm. So we're going to jump down to Connor. Um, and he asks... Um, in, in most relationships, couples these days, couples live together before they're married to sort of test it out, make sure things are compatible. Um, so should, um, uh, should we as Christians not live with our significant other before marriage? And if we don't know how, if we don't, how do we know that it'll work out with the big transition to living together? Um, should it be that the love between each other should be enough to know that it's a good decision? Um, so Let's, short answer is, is no, you shouldn't live together before you get married. No exclamation mark, <laughs> underline, bold, period, no discussion. Um, there's no, there's no, um, like try it before you buy it. <laughs> kind of, that's kind of the mentality. Um, I think, I, and, and we don't say this like glibly as like pastors being, I don't know, prudes or something. We've seen it play out. I mean, obviously it, it works out for people, but if, if you're try it before you buy it mentality, it's just like, that's just like an unhealthy mentality to walk into a marriage relationship with. Totally. Um, it, it means you're always going to have a backdoor, um, mentality. Um, and so that's just not healthy, but, um, in terms of navigating the big decision or big transition, um, yeah, it can be a big transition. Um, and I think, um, if you're, if you have people around you that you can be honest with about what, what the struggles are, and it could be like as simple as dividing housework or cleaning up after one another or cleaning up after yourself or your spouse doesn't maybe. Um, and just being, not hiding that from people, um, that that's a struggle and just talking about it and, and getting input. It's really practical stuff, um, that I think, gets blown out of proportion because people don't like to share that they're struggling. Um, and it just is the root of so many like fights that aren't actually fights. They're just like rooted in this side issue um, of annoyance and irritation. Um, Cause yeah, the, the transition of living together is, is really honestly just comes down to like the nuts and bolts of life, taking out the garbage, doing the dishes, cooking, cleaning, Waking up, going to bed, like it's just stuff you have to navigate, and it is hard. But if you have, if you're, if you're willing to like be open and vulnerable about those struggles, then, then I, then you'll you, be okay. You'll be okay. It and, might be hard work, but you'll be okay. And I think crucially, this is where church family comes in. Yeah, uh, I can say without a doubt, people who bring their church family around them closer in that transition are more likely going to thrive. Uh, I've walked this out with some people. We've walked out some really sad, tragic scenarios where that did not happen, and uh, it's all about church family. Church mm -hmm. family, like marriage isn't you going off on your own. It's you forming a new family unit in the context of a broader church family unit, and that that's really, really important. I think uh, this has been alluded to, but the reason why we can't try it before we buy it is the purpose and why of marriage. Mm -hmm. Marriage is reflecting sacrificial love, and to say, like, I want to make sure this works out for me before I commit to you is the opposite of sacrificial love. And so, yes, it is a blind, it is putting faith and trust in another person. 
And then we get to spend the rest of our lives demonstrating how much we love them. And it's hard, man. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. But that's why the Christian ethic of marriage is so beautiful because it's in every moment we are proclaiming what Christ has done for us when we choose to love our spouse. Anyway, we're digressing. Yeah. So back to Laura. She's just uh, following up here. Um, do you have advice for people who think so far that they say boundaries go against the right to make a cho- make choices? How can we support people who aren't living with a Christian worldview that way but still point them to Jesus? Can I jump in? Yeah. Or did you have something? You go first. And if I... This is literally 1 Corinthians chapter 6. <laughs> like it could not, you basically just quoted 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where basically people are like, well, it's my body. I can do whatever I want. Why, are you tell- why, is- why would you tell me what I cannot do? And Paul's point here is exactly that. That the Christian ethic is different. Like, we choose to be very careful what we do with our bodies. Now, if somebody's not a Christian and they don't live with that worldview, Paul actually makes the the point that we can't expect them to behave as if they did. I don't expect people that do not believe Jesus is Lord to follow this ethic. But here's the really cool thing. If we can communicate how life-giving and loving a sexual ethic, a Christian sexual ethic is, it's attractive, In fact, it was one of the most um, dominant aspects of Christianity that made people interested in Christianity in the first century because it was so contrary to the world around them. And our world today is quite a bit similar. Our ethic is very different. And people may rub up against it. They may criticize it. They may hate it. They may think we're crazy. But because it's true, it's also going to ring as true and people will ask questions and Mm -hmm. be interested. So. So I'll just add, I'm going to assume that um, you're sort of talking about the same person that you painted in your first question, that they maybe grew up a Christian and now are not following that way. Um, Sometimes, you know, if if they're a really close friend of yours, um, you know, just being a friend and asking like, hey, like, you know, you used to think differently about this, like, like what's changed? Do you feel like, you know, I, as your friend, I don't want you to be compromising something that you highly, you valued highly, right? Um, and and things like that. And then, um, I don't know, just, just being an example yourself if you're in a relationship um, can, can go a long way. Um, you know, I've had... Um, friends ask me, you know, do, do you guys have trust issues? Like, do, do you check his phone for messages from other girls and stuff? I'm like, no, I never look at Robin's phone. Like, we don't check each other's phones because, I don't know, we trust each other. But, like, also our lifestyle, you know, in this case, it was, it, you know, if you meet someone at a club, like, yeah, you're not going to trust them <laughs> that, they don't, that, that, that they don't, you know, have other girls messaging them from, you know, their last club night. So, um, you know, it, it's a lifestyle thing. And there's there are interesting circumstances there. You know, you don't have to be like, well, I don't go to clubs. But, you know, just being like, well, no, we don't. Like, we, you know, have had boundaries. And so that creates the boundaries themselves create an immense space for a lot of trust. Um, and actually, that might a helpful thing to point out. I don't know. Uh, some of the most fruitful evangelistic conversations I had came from when Laura and I were dating and some of my uh, my classmates who were not Christians were just baffled uh, <laughs> about the fact that we like wouldn't sleep together and, and things like that. They were just like, what? It, made no, it, was, it was awesome. Uh, Dan asks, how can we disciple someone whose significant other is constantly pressuring actively or pastoring to go further physically? Um, I, I'm going to be a little bit cautious here because I, I don't want to come across 
too legalistic and firm, but I also think that I want to be clear, which is that if somebody is pushing the boundaries and it's very one-sided, then I would encourage that person to break off the relationship. The other person in that party is not honoring them and is not respecting them. And that will, that doesn't have a future, that relationship does not have a healthy future. Uh, now, if there's a relationship that has some dimension of that and it's corrected, it is possible to correct it, but I, I would be very, very cautious and I would basically say like that relationship is, is, is unhealthy and that person, if it's one-sided, is unhealthy and not ready for a relationship. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm gonna be that. But most of the time in a healthy relationship, it's it's pretty it's two sided. There might be some leading and some sort of a little bit of a like a tango, like, but usually it's it's kind of a mutual thing, which is really what I'm speaking to do. Where it's one sided, uh, that that's not healthy. Sure. So I'm gonna jump down to Jody's question, and Kirsten, I saw your question too. Uh, we'll circle back. Um, but how do we go about starting a conversation with someone we're discipling and have been for a while, but they've been in a relationship for longer than we've been disciple in this. Dis relationship how do we start that conversation if it's something we've never had before um i i i mean if you if if you've been discipling them for a while and and you know each other well i would just have the conversation um even if the relationship the romantic relationship precedes your relationship with the person um uh you know, you maybe don't have to go for the, like, sexual intimacy conversation right away, but, um, you know, just, you know, hey, I want to learn more about your boyfriend or girlfriend. What's your relationship like? How'd you guys meet? What do you love about that person? Like, what do you guys do for fun? Um, and then, and, and, and start the conversation that way, just, like, totally normally, and then, um, and then go from there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um... Uh, so, so, so fast. Then we'll jump back up to Kirsten's question. Sure. When discipling someone in a, a relationship and jealousy creeps in from the person doing the discipling, how do you navigate through that? Should you separate yourself from discipling them? So if you're discipling someone who's in a relationship and you're not and you get jealous that they're in a relationship, how do you navigate those emotions? Um, that's a really complicated one. I think what I would probably uh, recommend there, at least initially, is to verbalize that to somebody that you're that's discipling you. Um, I wouldn't initially like. I think that in the early days, catch it early, bring it to somebody you trust who's discipling you, and kind of work through that together. And if you catch it early enough, then that should be something that you can navigate through. Yeah, yeah. I think just being honest, not with yeah. the person you're discipling. That'd yeah, be, that'd be very weird. Well, yeah, it would put too much pressure on them. I think. Um, did we mean a book club or does book club count? That's funny. Okay, so Kirsten asks, uh, Kirsten um, wanted us to speak to divorce. Um, the purpose of marriage and how there isn't an out. Can you talk to talk about divorce since our culture tells us it's a valid option? Uh, yeah, this one's really tricky. Um, we have experienced, I mean, we have not divorced, but we have experienced friends who have divorced and it's, you know, been a, we've had close contact with it and it's devastating um, yeah. for everyone involved and everyone who's touched by it. And so I just want to recognize that um, because obviously there's a lot of people who are touched by it um, and whose families have, have suffered from it. Um, 
and uh, but yeah, it's 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 a tricky one. I'm just gonna preface it and then leave it to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I think we really want to we really want to disciple people towards the fact that marriage is a lifelong covenantal relationship mm-hmm. of deep commitment, and divorce is not an option um, in any sense of cognitive. Well, we like. Um, uh, like, we don't want that in our minds. It's not an option. It is a lifelong covenantal commitment. And so um, that's what we want to train our disciples. That's what we want to teach people. And that's what we want to walk out. Um, so, yeah. Oh, I love this. Andrew asks a great question. Uh, is it okay to disciple someone who's not in a re- if you're not in a relationship to disciple somebody who is? How do they? How are they going to take you seriously? Um, I alluded to this at the, at the, right off the top, but it, it's really First Corinthians six and seven. Paul was single, basically telling the whole church how to navigate their relationships, mm-hmm. and this is really important because in discipleship, our authority doesn't come from ourselves; it comes from what's true and what we see in Scripture, and from our broader church family. So the appeal to the way that we're discipling isn't necessarily, hey, I have this great wisdom from all my experience. It's, hey, this is what we see in scripture and this is what we believe as a church. And then invite people to see that. And so, in other words, you're not asking them to take you seriously. You're asking them to take scripture, the word of God, seriously. And you're inviting them to take what we believe about uh, church's family seriously. So the best part is, ultimately, in discipleship, it's really not about us. Um, yeah, I also think too, like when it comes to relationships, I think particularly, um, while our culture is a little bit obsessed with like the romance of relation of relationships. And I think the church is a little bit too. So we could read discipleship as like, how do we teach someone how to be a good spouse or how do we teach a husband to, I don't know, plan a date for his wife or, um, you know, like kind of those, um, life more life aspects but but you know discipleship is so much just about pointing people to Jesus and then um you know hopefully the out, the out the outpouring of that is a, is a healthy relationship um and so you don't have to put if you're a single person discipling someone in a relationship you don't have to put the burden of yours on yourself to like you know make date night suggestions or something <laughs> like like that that's not what the purpose is for and yeah, uh, yeah. so T- totally um, um and adam helpfully re- or D- dan helpfully reminds us here that jesus was also single so um <laughs> contrary to dan yeah. Brown. Yeah. remember discipleship isn't about life coaching someone it's about pointing them to jesus and a life of mission honoring him and anybody can do that uh, Josiah asks a really good question. How would you respond to someone who believes... There's actually a whole set of questions here which are really interesting. That sex helps get rid of depression? Let's start there. That's the first question. Sure. Um, <laughs> sorry, you, I, I'll, I'll start by responding. I would say that sounds really selfish. Um, you're gonna u- it means you're using somebody else to address your own personal needs. Yeah, I, I, was, I was just going to say it kind of sounds like a crutch. I would say it sounds yeah. profoundly selfish. And and for you're basically taking advantage of somebody else to fulfill and gratify yourself. That which is, is not the purpose of sex. Which is not the purpose of sex and is not Christian love in any kind of sense. So, um, yeah, I would yeah. just say that. And I would, 
that that would be the truth. What I would then do is encourage that person to walk out the roots of that depression and generally start to uncover like what's really going on there. So, uh, the second question you asked was, uh, how would you respond if someone who thinks if you love someone you should marry them regardless of if they're Christian or not because the Bible doesn't say it, and then when you quote Paul, they say, well, Paul's not. Um, That's opinion. Paul's opinion. Well, the problem is that I would say this person is, seems to have a fairly uh, poorly formed theology of Scripture um, because all of Scripture is God-breathed, including Paul's writings. And so we can't pick and choose which parts of Scripture we're going to listen to here. Um, number one, I would then go back and say it's not about a legalistic case of do or don't. It's about the why of marriage. What's the purpose of marriage? And the purpose of marriage is to join together in a life of mission to glorify God. And that's not possible if you have two people who don't equally want to glorify God. Uh, the final piece is you sh if you love someone, you should marry them. I would challenge them to very carefully define what they mean by love. As Christians, love is not an abstract term that we use to describe our emotions. Love is a practical act of denying yourself, laying your life down to serve another. And so I would really invite them to, to really probe what that uh, what they mean when they say I love love someone else so mm -hmm. we have a few people typing here now um, <laughs> yeah their view of scripture is problematic <laughs> uh, it, yes um, so yeah but I think we've touched on that yeah we haven't missed any have we Woo, that's quite the discussion I know yeah you guys are firing them off uh, <laughs> so my question is it's hard to know if you guys are just going to chat amongst yourselves or if questions are yeah. up. But that's okay. Good conversation here. Yeah. Well, we've been going for a long time, so we could probably wrap it up. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Let's wrap it up. Thanks for your questions, everybody. And If there's any other really, really tactical, practical questions, yeah. uh, maybe just send them in. We can shoot another quick 10 tips video or whatever. Dan mm -hmm. loves doing those. He had a time of his life doing it. Uh, he's volunteered to do them every week. Um, and so just send them to Dan and he'll make uh, new videos for you and sure. collate that wisdom. Great. Perfect. Thanks, guys. It's been fun. And next week we are starting something brand new. Very excited. We're going to be back with livecast, webcast together again. So we'll see you then. All right. Bye, guys. <laughs>